It really is a privilege for me to be with you guys here today. So, um, yeah, I got to know Dave 26 years ago when I came to be the youth pastor at Temple Bible Church, and um, the, the years, those early years were filled with a lot of us getting to know one another, uh, lots of robust discussion, lots of respect uh, that was growing and building, um, but we didn't always see things the same way as you might expect. And uh, back then, Dave was really young. I mean, it's like 21 years old. His head was shaved like a cue ball when I when I first met him. And I'm I didn't you know I'm like so what what what's going on? He goes, I lost a bet with our junior hires. I'm like ah, got it. But he used to mock me mercilessly because um, I carried a day timer, you know, for calendaring things. And he just thought, what an old person thing to do, right? Until the day that I'm up late working at our youth building and junior hires begin to arrive. Now, I, I did high school ministry. He did our junior high ministry. And uh, so I pick up the phone and call him. I'm like, Dave, what, what's going on? You have junior hires arriving. He's like, oh, totally forgot. I planned an event tonight. And I go, you planned an event? He goes, yeah. And I'm taking my wife out to dinner. And so can you cover? And I'm like, really? You're really asking me at the last minute to cover because of your, you know, not having this written down, not remembering. He's like, yeah, do you mind? And I said, you know what, Dave? I am going to do that this time if you will begin to use a calendar and babysit for us every Sunday night for a year. <laughs> actually, that wasn't part of the deal. But they actually did that for us, he and Autumn. It was very, very sweet. Um, no, I, will, I want you guys to know, Dave, I, I respect Dave so much. He is one of the most creative, faithful, sensitive to the Lord uh, men that I know, you guys have a gem in your pastor of Dave McMurray. So absolutely think he is a, a great guy, one of my closest friends. So so the series that y'all have been in this summer is called Ancient Faith. I love, the, uh, I love that title, Ancient Faith. It's out of Hebrews 11, and, uh, and really the, the writer of Hebrews, many of they've looked back on this, they go, wow, this is kind of, he's put together kind of the hall of, instead of the hall of fame, it's the hall of faith. And he's looking at how each of these ancients demonstrated their faith in a powerful, good, and loving God, right? They were looking forward to a better home. They were looking forward to a better morning and a brighter sunrise that was coming. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the life of Noah. So our text is Hebrews 11, verses 6 and 7. And it reads like this, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a a simple prayer to ask. It's impossible to accomplish apart from you. Would you give us eyes to see the unseen? the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So as I said, I came to to Temple 26 years ago um, to be the youth pastor. It would be six weeks before we could get our family moved down from the Plano area. So I was making trips back and forth. And on one trip, I can remember um, just praying Lord, I, I want a sense of a name that we can name our high, our high school community. And, uh, and I was listening to an album from one of my uh, 
uh, heroes back then, a guy named Steve Taylor, and this was a double album and that was titled Squint. And there was a song on there that was entitled Squint as well. And it was kind of the final song. It was just a worship song. And uh, in, in, in that song, what he's doing is looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. And, and he's, uh, the, the imagery in the song is that it's in the same way that you might go out and watch a sunrise one morning, right? As the sun grows bigger and bigger and bigger, as the glory of the sun fills the sky, there's a point where you have to like, begin to squint your eyes if you're going to continue to watch it, right? And he says, in the same, in the same way, when the Son of Man returns... His glory is going to fill the heavens. It's going to fill the earth. And as it grows, in a similar fashion, he he just thought about it like this, that we're going to have to squint the eyes of our minds, the eyes of our hearts, right? And and as I thought about that, I went, oh, I love that. That is so cool. We're going to call our our youth community squint, S-K-W-I-N-T, seeing the unseen. And I remember going on our fall retreat and selling this to our students. I was so excited, you know, caught up in like this moment of transcendence as I'm telling them about it. So sure that they're going to be excited about this. And you know what they said? They said, that's weird. I don't get it. And I'm like, and I already had t-shirts made that said squint, for them to wear to school, and so they would wear them to school, and their friends would say, Squint, what's that? They go, oh, that's the name of our, our student community at our church. And their friends would go, that's weird. <laughs> I don't get it. And I think that um, Noah, in his time, among the, the people that he was with, as he brought the message uh, that was his message of judgment through a flood with a giant boat, um, that the people must have just said, that's weird. I don't get it. And I think that those who have looked back at this section um, out of uh, Genesis chapter 6 through 9 have probably scratched their head and said some of the same things. Like, I don't get it. Like, like, here's the thing. When you talk about Noah and the ark and the flood, you have to squint the eyes of your heart and the eyes of your mind and in order to see the unseen, as Noah did. Like, I think sometimes we forget that all this for Noah as well was a call to squint the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your mind, and trust me, Noah, like God was calling him to trust him. If there ever was something that, that, that I think our world has called a tall tale in Scripture, people point to this, this passage. Noah and the ark. People are just scratching their heads. Really? So a boat, all the animals, a flood covering the earth. Are you a thinking individual? Because, like, I don't get it. That is really, really weird. So let me just say this from the outset, that the story of Noah and the ark is not based on a true story. I love it when that pops up on, a, on the screen of a movie I'm watching based on a true story. Kind of like, okay, so somehow there's some artistic composite here. You know, there's going to be a lot of figurative stuff here, a lot of allusion back to the real story. We may not even know what the real story is. That's not going on here. The story of Noah and the ark is not based on a true story. It is a true story. Like, it's, it's the history of our world. It's, it's a part of the, the, how we got to where we are as hard as that is to believe. So here's some of the reasons I believe that. The first is this, that Noah is presented equally in this particular canon of, uh, of, of faith right here in Hebrews 11, right? Among all these other 
uncontested biblical characters and figures. He's an equal among them. So that's, that's one. Another one is that while there is figurative language in the, the story here that we're going to look at today, um, for sure there is all through Scripture, right? There's, there's definitely figurative language. There is an awful lot of concrete language that needs very little interpretation. Um, names, ages, times, construction, and uh, procedural uh, speci- specifications, all those are very, very specific, and I would just say it points to something that actually happened. Number three, Noah is referred to, I, I didn't realize this, but uh, 50 times in Scripture. Did y'all realize that? Noah is referred to 50 times in Scripture and is found in nine different books of the Bible. It's like, hmm, the Bible writers sure seem to think that, uh, that this story was historical. And the last two, I think, are the weightiest of all. In Isaiah 54, uh, the prophet is sharing the words of the Lord when God like the words of the Lord, when God alludes to his covenants um, that he made with Noah as the best example of him being a God who keeps his promises. If you, if you want to know about a God who keeps his promises, every time there's a, a rainstorm, that, that rainbow happens, it's a memorial, it's a reminder that I'm a God who keeps his promises. That's pretty powerful. And then Jesus himself alludes to Noah and the ark and the flood as, as historical fact. This is out of uh, Matthew 24. Jesus says, for the coming of the Son of Man, like like the second coming, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like sobering, sobering words. With that said, let me uh, say this one last thing and, and by way of introduction or preamble to uh, uh, the, the story, and we're going to get into it. And that is that um, I don't think that the, the, the uh, information God gives us in Genesis 6 through 9 is, is attempting to tell us how God did what he did. It's merely telling us that God did it. And faith accepts the balance there. Right? Faith accepts that, that balance that, that's there. Because there's lots of questions that get stirred up in, in your mind as you read this story, as there are in many stories in Scripture, but especially this story. All right, so we could spend a month of uh, Sundays talking about this passage. Today we have one hour to talk about this, uh, this whole story. So our goal is to answer one question today, and that is why did Noah make the cut and make it into the hall of faith, and what can he teach us? Like, why did he make the cut, and what is it that, that God wants to teach us through Noah's story? So here's my outline. Noah is included in the hall of faith because his story reminds us of the world. The way of Cain is condemned. It reminds us of the word. God's warnings and promises are trustworthy. It reminds us of the work. Noah's radical obedience is commended. And it reminds us of the worship. Noah's thanksgiving for a faithful God. So let's start with this big question, what was going on in the world that was so horrible that God would bring judgment to the world in this fashion? Like bring a flood and wipe out everything that needed air to breathe. Let's consider the world. The way of Cain is condemned. So we're going to pick it up and read in Genesis chapter 6 if you want to follow along with your app or in your Bible. We're going to read 14 verses here out of Genesis 6. 
And it goes like this. When, the man began, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for, his, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men uh, daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on, in the earth, and that every intention of his thought, uh, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So, <clears throat> the, the situation on earth was pretty rough. Like, like in, in, in uh, verse 5 we read, uh, we get a picture of man's hearts before the flood. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, if you didn't catch the emphasis there, there's a lot of emphasis going on to to help us understand this is a bad time to live on earth. This was a horrible time to live on earth. George Matheson is a a Scottish writer, uh, nearly went blind and wrote many um, character studies of biblical figures. And so he writes about this period, and this is what he says. He says that the radical difference between a good man and a bad man lies in what they think. The boundary line between virtue and vice is situated in the imagination. The germ cell of a man's character is his ideal, his answer to the question, what makes life worth living? The danger of this age was the danger which besets young men of every age, which is an unworthy ideal of glory. An unworthy ideal of glory. So what was the world's ideal of glory? What was going on? How were they thinking? It may well have been uh, the way Jude 11 describes the world back then when he, he says it was the way of Cain that, uh, that ruled and reigned back in the day. A couple weeks ago, I saw on the board back there that you guys um, went through Cain and Abel, and you um, were reminded again, perhaps, of Cain, who came to present his sacrifice before the Lord. Abel presents his. God finds Abel's um, uh, acceptable and pleasing to him, but not Cain's. And so he, uh, uh, Cain grows angry and jealous with his brother. He, he despises his brother because the Lord um, has affection for him. And so he calculates in a cold-blooded way how to take him out, and he murders his brother. 
And God comes to him and says, the ground has cried out. The blood of your brother has cried out to me, and no longer is it going to produce any crops. You have been a farmer. You're not going to be able to grow anything anymore. From here on out, you're going to be a wanderer. You're going to wander the earth. And Cain says, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. And Cain goes out and begins building a godless city where he can sow his propaganda a place where he can proclaim you know, all the advantages of godless living uh, until everybody residing there was convinced that evil pays, might makes right. Don't suffer those who despise you. Wipe them out. Get them out of your hair. If it feels good, do it. And I think the biggest of all, the most overarching piece of this is no one should be able to tell you how to live. This was Cain's religion. And it was more and more and more ruling the day. Now, here's what I know. That the, our ancient enemy was the one who was animating the heart and the mind of Cain. Absolutely. And I would say that the actions that we see of Cain didn't go away when, after the flood, uh, through the flood. Like they, they somehow made it through the flood because of our ancient enemy who comes to animate the hearts and minds of those who do not know the Lord, some more than others. But the way of Cain is alive and well today. I was watching a special with my, uh, my dad this past weekend, and um, the commentator, a political commentator, asked these two questions. He said, so what if the societal referee really is biased? He goes on, what if the national umpire really is calling it differently for this team than for the other team? And I could just sense, you know, how his audience everywhere that was broadcast was incensed. Like, yeah, I agree with that. There's some, and I I know with my own father that he feels so much of that. I feel some of that. I think all of us feel a bit of that. There is this sense where we want to know that there's some kind of referee out there in society, in culture, willing to call it fairly, right? We, we hope that maybe it'll be the educational system. Maybe it'll be our government. Maybe it'll be our judicial system. Maybe it'll be the press. And time and again, we get frustrated and disappointed and incensed that they're not calling it fairly. And I thought about this. I just thought, you know what? our enemy has done is he has increasingly kind of changed the the game where no longer does our society, does our culture look to God or his word or the church to be that referee. Like, Like what we've said is let's push all this aside and surely we can rewrite the books and nobody can tell us how to, how to live and we can have a, a greater, a better morality is what, uh, is what's going on as the enemy wants to debase our cultural conscience. He's been very successful at doing that. I would just say the way of Cain was alive and well then, it's alive and well now. So as we look at this passage, uh, there's a a couple of very thorny questions that are here. Um, You have to ask the question, well, who were the Nephilim? And what about this whole sons of God marrying the daughters of man? And I just want you guys to know that I, I just love the fact that Dave is such a um, well-studied uh, pastor, that he's been to seminary, theologically grounded, and he would love to take any and all of your phone calls, all your emails, 
And so just keep, just ask away. He would love to address these two questions. I have a buddy who travels and, uh, or used to be a traveling speaker, and he'd say, every church I'd go to, Shannon, I'd have some little thorny question, and we would, we would address, I'd address it that way. Just talk to your pastor and stir it all up for him. So, no, we're going we're gonna to address it quickly here, because we don't have a lot of time to spend here. But the Nephilim, and uh, the w- one way of translating that is the word giants, like the Nephilim were were giants. They were, um, I, some, some would speculate that they were uh, fallen angels who took the form of men and saw the attractiveness of uh, women and they had intimate relations with them. And there's a lot of sci-fi there. There's a lot of uh, things that, that people have uh, thought about and talked about with that. If you've seen the latest Noah movie uh, with Russell Crowe, there was some crazy you know, pictures of these giant stone creatures. This stuff of sci-fi I do not believe that the Nephilim were uh, fallen angels. I, I think it's the giants were men of great renown militarily. Like they were men of great strategy. They were men of great accomplishment militarily. And there was a mythology that surrounded them, right? There's this whole lore that surrounded them. These are men like uh, Gladiator, Maximus Aurelius, which I love that movie. Um, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, and many would say, you know, probably it's put Hitler in there as well. These are not men of good renown. These are men of, uh, who were giants when it came to, uh, in many ways, their ruthlessness. By the way, we still see the Nephilim after the flood, when Israel goes in to spy out the land of Canaan, they come back and say, the Nephilim are there. And what, what they saw likely were the Amalekites, which were a big people, but they were not giants. But this whole lore and mythology gets, uh, continues on. So I, I just do not believe that uh, it was anything more than men of great military accomplishment. Uh, sons of God marrying the daughters of man. I think that our enemy has so corrupted the hearts of the godly line of Seth. Right? So the godly line of Seth is there. They were not to be intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. And they, the, the men among them began to um, look to the daughters of Cain and recognize their beauty. And they took whom they wanted to be their wives. And, it's, and you come now to a point where they, the, the, the godly line has been corrupted. And you have eight people, eight people who seek after God left on earth. Like when has that ever happened? Eight people who are seeking after God. In other words, the enemy is this close to stopping that ancient prophetic threat that the seed of man is going to crush your head. He's that close. He's, he can feel it. He's right there. And you begin to go, wow, in light of that, maybe I understand a little bit better why God was going to bring judgment to the earth in the fashion that he was. The world was following the way of Cain, and it was condemned. But God is a God who, who warns, right? There's a warning he brings a warning through his man, through Noah. And I would just say that God's warnings and his promises are absolutely trustworthy. Hebrews eleven seven once again, says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. So our God is a God of love and a God who warns. Our God is a God who wants to be known, who makes himself known. Like if you look at all the gods around the world of all the different religions, that's not true of them. 
There's all this mystery, and maybe, maybe I've um, appeased him. That's not our God. Our God wants to be known. He does it in two ways. One is through uh, natural revelation, the creation itself. You look at the world and you go, I can learn some things about God there. I can learn that, that, that he must be a, a masterful um, designer. I can see the complexity of God, the power of God, the beauty of God in the creation. But I really can't know God personally unless there is special revelation. And that is his word that he has given to us. I love Psalm 19. The first six verses talk about natural creation. Then the the seven through the end talk about God's special revelation. Let me pick it up in verse eight. This is what it says. It's what God is saying about himself. He says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to this last verse. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. I, I love that. The Bible is filled with, uh, with God warning and wooing. There is wooing and there is warning. They're really two sides of the same coin. But God's revelation is given to us as a gift because he cares about us. And apart from it, we would head off into some dangerous, dangerous places. God wants us to believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is how the Apostle Paul um, relates this truth to his young son in the faith to Timothy out of 2 Timothy 3. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters are going to go from bad to worse, deceiving and being, being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching for a proof, for correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me just interject something here. I love seeing the kids up here dancing and teaching them the word of God, teaching them Romans 8.37. Like you're training them up in righteousness. You're, you're showing them the sacred writings, right? You're helping them become acquainted with them. And the truth is, it's going to lead to their salvation and lead, hopefully, to them being um, bearing lots of fruits for their Lord. So way to go, you guys. Susan and I were over here um, at the first service just going, this is really, really cool. I love that. So here's my question to you. Have you made God's word your daily bread? Have you made God's word your daily bread? Do you hunger for it? Do, do, do you have this kind of this spiritual appetite that goes off and says, man, I'm famished. It's time to eat today. And you sit down and open the word and spend time with the heavenly father. Like, does that go on? Or did you kind of just snack on the word of God like it's an appetizer, you know, just a little dip and chip there? I'm good. Good to go. May, may catch it one day, may not catch it the next day. For some folks, that's kind of the way we handle the Word of God. Or are you just kind of waiting for that magical moment, you know, when uh, you're going to suddenly have a desire for green eggs and ham like Sam I am? You know, like it's it's suddenly going to happen. You're going to realize, oh, this is really good. 
Do you hunger for the word of God? I would say this. If you want to know God, you have to know God's word. I hear people all the time tell me about who God is and the way, you know, the stipulations they place on him. It's like, I will not follow a God who, fill in the blank, or I will only follow a God who, fill in the blank. And I'm like, have you read God's word? Like, like you say you know God, but, but have you read his word? He wants to introduce you to him in his word. Don't take somebody else's word for it. It's fine to be led to that place uh, by others. It's great that parents lead their kids to that place, but there's got to be the place where you take it up yourself. And on a regular basis, you're in his word if you are going to know the true and living God. If you want to know God, you have to be in the word of God. You have to know the word of God. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, true biblical faith operates like this. God speaks, we hear, and we trust in the word, and then we act on it no matter what the circumstances or the consequences might be. God speaks, we hear, and we act on it in obedience. We have to know the word of God if we're going to put our faith in the Lord. Like I have to know who he is and what he's called me uh, to be. So God's word leads Noah to action. It leads Noah to good works, and it should, as it should lead all of us in our lives. So let's consider the work. Noah's radical obedience is commended. His radical obedience is commended. Noah and his work of building this giant boat would have become very well known like, like throughout the, uh, all the, the region of mankind. Mankind had not spread out very far in the world yet. And, and so God really says, yeah, I, I want to put this on display. I want you to build this gigantic boat. I want you to become a spectacle to the world, Noah. I'm intending that uh, to happen. I think God intends that, by the way, for our lives as well. Um, I think that it is possible that uh, when we read of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus giving the parable, uh, this particular parable, um, I think he may very well have thought of Noah. And the parable goes like this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So the wicked were all like, man, life's been going along just fine. Get off your high horse, Noah, relax, chill out. And Noah's, and so they built their house on sand and Noah's built his house on, on the rock, seeing the unseen, the reality that's coming and he's like, you guys don't get it. There's a storm coming. And if, you, and, and if you're not on the ark, there's no salvation. There's, there is no way through this for you. So pay attention. So I think that <clears throat> there must have been lots of conversations happening between Noah and the people around him. Noah and his family, there's eight of them. Um, he's got his three sons. They each have wife. Noah, Noah has a wife, so there's eight total who follow after the Lord. And I think that they had a lot of conversations as they were building this ark. Um, conversations like, you know, those walking by and walking by and walking by. <laughs> like this ark was huge. It was 300 cubits long, which a cubit is about the tip of a finger to the tip of an elbow and the normal average man's arm. So I'm definitely not very average, but, uh, um, but probably about 18 to 20 inches. So 300 cubits would be about 450 to 500 feet long. 
Uh, it was 50 cubits wide, so 75 to 80 feet wide. It was 30 cubits tall, so 45 to 50 feet tall. It had three decks, it had one door, had a row, a thin row of windows at the top, no doubt covered so the rain wouldn't come in. And then it was made of gopher wood, like one of the only places in Scripture that we see uh, something made of gopher wood. Uh, Henry Morris, Bible scholar and historian, calculated, just thinking about the size of the ark, he calculated that uh, you would have room for about 125 thousand boxcars from trains, right? Train boxcars, 125,000 or 625 trains. Like that would be a really long train crossing to wade through, you know? Be there for days. Nope, we're only at 100,000. I'll let you know when it passes. I'll wake you up. This thing was huge. And so people were like, what gives? By the way, wouldn't that just kind of clue you in? Like maybe I need to be asking some questions here. Somebody's building a boat that big. Like there's got to be a backstory to this. Surely I need to ask some better questions. But some other ones might be like, so why would you build such an immovable object by its source and not by its destination? Like he probably built the thing next to a forest of gopher wood. He probably didn't build it near the water. Ever thought about that? It's like, how are you going to do this? What's the mechanism? How are you going to get the boat to the water? And Noah's like, aha, I know something you don't. Other questions, why are you taking a sampling of all the animals? How will you collect them? How are you going to coax them into the boats? I mean, really, are you doing this? Like, how are they going to survive? How long is the voyage? And I think the biggest question of all is, and who is this God? And why would you obey him when he's asking you to do something so idiotic? Like, you realize this is crazy talk. Like, why would you obey this God? Because Noah could see the unseen. Genuine faith and a genuine God can. That's just the truth of it. God opens our eyes through his word and through his spirit, and we can see the unseen world around us. We believe him. We act on what he calls us to. I think what people find so unbelievable unbelievable about Noah is his radical obedience. It looks incredibly radical in light of the, the conditions of his world at the time. But his faith led to obedience, right? It burned bright in a dark world, and it needed to burn bright in a dark world. But here's the thing. It's not because Noah had a greater quantity of faith. I think sometimes we kind of, you know, um, excuse ourselves, like, well, he he must have had a greater quantity of faith. No, it's actually he had a different quality of faith. It has everything to do with what the object of his faith was in. His faith was in a faithful God. And when your faith is, it will produce good works. It just will. It'll it'll produce radical obedience in our lives. You begin to walk by faith and not by sight. You begin seeing the unseen. And it's not because our faith is great. It's because our God is. Y'all realize that? It's not because our faith is great. It's because our God is. So hear me. Let me just... Make sure nobody misunderstands. I am not saying, when I, t- when I mention works here, I am not trying to say that we believe that, that Noah was saved because of his works. Right? We don't, we're not saying that at all. We believe that genuine salvation will result, though, in a faith that works. Genuine salvation will result in a faith that works. Genesis 6.22 says, Noah did all that God commanded him. Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So when was the last time 
you read something in God's word that led you to action. Like it led you to take action in your life. Maybe it was a good work. Maybe it was a, a change in behavior. Maybe you were finally going, you know what? I need to deal with this habit in my life. It's tough. It's not pleasing to the Lord. I need to deal with this. Or maybe to say something, to take a risk, because you just know it's the right thing to do, to share your, your faith story, to point a neighbor, a, a coworker, to Jesus. Let me ask it this way. When was the last time that your faith worked? Thursday morning, I was uh, finishing up this message and uh, went in the kitchen to get another cup of coffee. And um, the sun was, you know, out. So there was kind of twilight in my kitchen. So I didn't, it didn't turn on the lights and put my cup down there and waiting for the Keurig to brew. And, and I noticed a, a spot of light had landed on one of our cabinets. And I was just curious about it. At first, I'm just like, huh. And then I begin to go, I don't know where the source of that light is. Like, where's, where's that light coming from? And I finally peeked around, and uh, our, our front of our house faces east. And uh, coming through one of the side lights, one of those narrow windows in the side of our door, this, uh, this, uh, this little spot of light was traveling through that window, traveling through our entry, through our formal dining room, our formal living room, and all the way across the kitchen and landing right there on that, ca- on that cabinet door. And I just kind of chuckled to myself thinking, wow, in that spot, the darkness had to flee. Like right there, the darkness had to flee that spot uh, caused by that little spotlight that's there. And, and suddenly, I began to realize that, uh, that really it judged the entire uh, darkness of the kitchen. The twilight of the kitchen didn't seem uh, bright enough anymore. So the way of Cain is to keep the lights off. What God is using Noah to do is to turn the lights on. Is he using you? Are you making yourself useful? Do you get in the word? Do you walk by faith and not by sight? Because if you're in Christ, then you are the light to a dark world, a world in twilight, a world in shadows. So Noah's life of obedience judged and condemned the world around him, not by acting condemning. He was not acting condemning. He was not self-righteous, but by living according to a better way, to to live according to a better ideal of glory, right? A better ideal of glory. So the writer includes Noah in his hall of faith because it reminds us of the world. The way of Cain is condemned. It reminds us of the word. God's warnings and promises are trustworthy. It reminds us of the work. Noah's radical obedience is commended. And finally, it reminds us of the worship. Noah's thanksgiving for a faithful God. So fast forward 120 years, right? 120 years, the ark is complete. All the animals are on board. Not one convert. That's just startling. Not one convert. And God tells Noah and his family, it's time. Head inside the ark. It's a week before the rains begin, and God closes the door and seals it with pitch, and I am sure that the surrounding peoples were laughing, 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 until they weren't, right? Violent was the way of Cain, and violent came the earth's retribution. Breakfast conversations and morning laughter were likely shattered by explosions of water and magma rupturing up from beneath. 
while the storehouse of heaven's ocean fell for 40 days and 40 nights, swallowing the earth up. But Noah and his family, they're saved. And I think as that enormous boat must have started to shift and sway as the water comes beneath it, I can just picture Noah and his family circling up, coming down on their knees, and through tear-filled prayers, thanking God for making a way. That God had made a way for them, and I think that they were not dancing a jig. They were not just excited about, oh, those stupid people down there. No, I think what they recognized was, oh, recognizing my own heart, I can't believe that you've made a way for me because we do not deserve salvation. I think that that was their prayer, and they knew it as they heard all the pounding and the screaming around that ark. Here's what they did not know, what Noah and his family did not know. Noah built an ark to house the living of his day, right? But the true ark in which God will house all those who seek life is Jesus Christ. By faith, Noah entered the ark, trusting that God was going to seal them inside and they were going to rise higher and higher above the judgment waters. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was raised up on a tree of gopher wood and crucified in Noah's place for his sins and for his family's sins and for the sins of all those who will, by faith, enter into God's ark of salvation. Is that you? Is Jesus the object of your faith? Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So I hope that you are found to be in Christ. Because the other thing that Noah's story points to is that the king is one day going to return. The Son of Man is going to return. And people uh, are are going to be saying, no, life's going to go on as it always has been. And he's going to return. And his glory is going to fill the sky. And he is going to rule and reign as the rightful king. So one year and 17 days later, God opens the door of that great house, the ark, and Noah and his family enter into a new world, and they have this beautiful painted bow hung on the, uh, the mantle of heaven, right? Rain had been God's weapon of destruction, but God now makes a covenant, and the memorial of that covenant is going to be, I am taking my weapon of warfare, and I'm hanging it up on my mantle of heaven, and every time the storms come, From here on out, you're going to know I will never judge the world in this way again. So it's a reminder to us. So he says, it's like saying to Noah, so don't fear the coming rainstorms, Noah. And Noah offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I think the story of Noah reminds us that uh, we're all going to weather a lot of storms in this life. There's a lot of storms that come. And they're hard. But his life reminds us to trust God, to live obediently, and to wait patiently for the sunrise. S-O-N. Because at, at his coming, we will all squint at his glory. Let's pray. Father,
You are a glorious God and a compassionate God. We thank you that we don't get what we deserve. We thank you that you made a way for eight righteous people. And Father, you invite us to enjoy that, uh, your righteousness as well. You invite us into the ark that is Christ. Father, I pray for those here who might have just questions about all that, but, but since you wooing them to yourself, you, wooing and warning them, I pray that they would come to place their faith in you. I pray that they would no longer um, be lulled by the way of Cain that says, nope, I'm going to do things my way. My, my sacrifice should be enough. I'm going to offer God what I want, and that should be enough. Father, I pray that they would recognize the brokenness of that, of that statement and that idea. And they'd repent, and they'd put their faith in you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the ongoing um, memorial that we have. Every time there's a storm, you are a good and faithful God. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, you guys.